Hang on. I'm ready for the big game. Here we go. You recognize this guy? Wherever there's a big game going on, the camera pans the crowd. You can be sure that someone with a rainbow wig and a John 3.16 sign is going to be right there in the camera shot, right? It's, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's the scripture that is everywhere. It's under Tim Tebow's eyeballs. It's under the In-N-Out Burger Cups. It's everywhere. John 3.16. And the reason is because packed into this one little verse is so much beautiful truth. It is the, the core message. You could say this is pretty much the core message of the entire gospel in 27 words or so, depending on the translation you use. 25 words if you're reading in Hebrew, uh, then you're smarter than I am. But understanding this one verse, uh, I'm telling you what, this can give us such a clear vision of what God is like, who Jesus is, why he came, what he thinks about you, all within these 27 words we're going to be reading today. We've been walking through the third chapter of John now for several weeks. I, I encourage you again, if you haven't caught up with us, all of the episodes up to now, make sure you go back and check them out because it'll be really good stuff for you. But today we have arrived at this, one of the most famous verses in the Bible. And it's all about love. It's all about love. Uh, and as it's God's love. And as we look at God's love and we get a, a, a clearer picture of God's love, we're going to get a clearer picture of how he expects us to love other people. Um, if we're going to follow in his example, right? That's what we want to do. We want to follow his, his example. Now, of course, when we're talking about love, there's a lot of different versions of love. There's a lot of different meanings for love. We throw that word around. Um, of course, there is uh, romantic love which is kind of this kind of love, like, oh, I, I just got to have you. I want you, baby. Come on, man. You know, that's, it's just give me. I, it's for me. I take. It's a taken kind of love. And then there's a friendship kind of love, which is kind of give and take. It's like, a, I, I, you, you know, you give me some and I, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. You know, it's that kind of, uh, it's kind of give and take. And then you have this agape love, which you hear pretty much only in church. You only hear about it in church circles. Uh, these three Greek words here, eros is, is the all take, philea is the give and take, you know, think city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, that friendship. And then there's agape, which is all give. And scholars have identified up to seven kinds of love, especially identified in the, in the Greek language. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously wrote a book called The Four Loves. He identified four of those, but these big three here are the ones that scripture really focuses on. And agape is special. Agape love is special. It's the love that the writers of scripture chose to best describe God's love for us. A, a love that was different from any human love. And it was the love that he wants us then, as we're filled with his spirit, to reflect toward other people. It's a giving love. It's a giving love, and it gives in order to help the other person be the best version of themselves that they can be. And that's very unique. This is not a giving that says, I'm going to spend myself on you till there's nothing left of me, and then, you know, you can just treat me like a doormat. It is we give in order to help others grow. And that's important. Agape is, is us giving in order to help others grow. So we give in order to help others become the best version of themselves that they can be. And... It's true, some of the ways that we can do that best is sometimes to have boundaries. You know, with some people, it, it requires boundaries. Or for some of our friends, when we have this agape love, it's, it's we hold each other accountable. We challenge each other. Um, we encourage toward change. It's not just lying down and being a doormat. But this, this is love. This is agape love. And it, it's others focused and it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a giving love that's just so beautiful. And it's going to be the heart of what we're talking about today. And also, just a reminder again, I'd just like to throw this out again. We're, uh, I hope you're, you're keeping track of your questions that, you, that fly through your mind as we're going through this series and write them down. Send them to us. On, you, can send, you go to the website. There's a questions for pastor or on the church app. Or you can write them on a piece of paper and put them in the little offering boxes. It'll get to me that way. You can email it to questions at gchurch.net. But send us those questions because we're going to have a Q&A Sunday. That's, a, I think, the beginning of September, September 5th will be Q&A Sunday. And that's always a lot of fun.
So send us those questions. Now, if you got your Bibles today, you can open them up to, guess where? John chapter 3, 16, right? Um, now, I'm going to bring up an interesting side note. This is interesting to me. John 3.16 is, up till now, we have been eavesdropping on a conversation, haven't we? This conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is asking, asking some questions, and Jesus is answering some questions. Wonderful, straightforward. It has been such a blessing to read this. No problem. Starting here, though, guess what? In the 16th verse, we don't actually know who's saying this. Isn't that interesting? The most famous of all of our verses. We don't know who's actually who's saying this because Greek doesn't have punctuation marks. It doesn't have quotation marks. And so we know at some point during this chapter, John, the, the writer, John takes over as the narrator, sort of reflecting on what Jesus is saying because he tells like, and then Jesus got up and went off over here. But we don't really know where that line happens. And so we don't know if this is Jesus talking or the writer John inserting himself to comment on something Jesus just said. Um, so it's very interesting. Um, scholars debate this. A lot of scholars debate this. Some of them like get their PhDs debating which one of these is. Is it Jesus or John? Like this, for, for the nerds of the church world, this is like, this is juicy stuff. Who is saying this? Some of your Bibles, if you have a Bible right now and you're looking at it, it takes a side. Uh, it really does, and especially if you have a red letter edition. Some of them will have the red letters and some of them won't to show Jesus or John. If you're reading the New King James Version, the ESV or the NRSV, you'll see Jesus is still speaking. He's in the quotes or he might be in the red letter. Um, if you're reading an NIV or a New English translation or God's Word, uh, those translations, the translator assumes that John the writer has now picked up, you know, the conch, and he's now talking about what Jesus maybe just said. Um, we do know, like I said, at the, by the end of the chapter, John has, has picked up the thread and he's talking, but we don't know where that shift takes place. One thing we can be sure of, though, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So whether it's Jesus talking or John talking, we can trust it. We can trust it completely because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's get into this this verse, this beautiful verse that Jesus, or maybe John, uh, said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. We're going to unpack this today, and we're going to discover some beautiful, and hopefully for you some surprising things, as it was for me, uh, just learning to study this out. First of all, it starts off, God. God. Now, this is very important. Um, we want to make sure that however we approach the understanding of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and that is what Jesus has in mind here in the verse right before it. He just said, just as, remember, the, the serpent was lifted in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted. And he's, talking, he's referring to his crucifixion here. And so we know that's what's on Jesus' mind. Um, and here we see that the crucifixion stems from one reason. What is that reason? For God so loved the world that he gave. God so loved the world that he gave. This is a very important point. You would think like, well, this part's obvious, but you already would put yourself at odds with, unfortunately, like almost half of the Christian world by understanding the crucifixion of Christ is the expression of God's love. The crucifixion of Christ is the expression of God's love. If you have a theology See, that, that distances the crucifixion from God's love and sees it more as, as an expression of God's wrath. If that eclipses the love of God, then, then you've gone too far in that direction. And if we have a theology that sees God's wrath is poured out to us, and it's just, you know, God's just really the angry one here, and Jesus steps in in order to save us, not from our sins, but from God. Like, no, Dad, don't hurt him. Like, that's the picture. Of, if that's your picture of things going on here, then you've gotten some things twisted around. If, if we're saying, wow, Jesus, you're so loving for doing this, and God, wow, you are really just and righteous, okay. Right? If that's our picture, something is upside down. Someone's character is being impugned here. If I never used that word before, but there you go, impugned. We're missing the thrust of the entire New Testament gospel if we misunderstand that the self-giving 
of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, is all something that reveals the love of the Father. It reveals the love of the Father being poured out for us. For God so loved, it says. Not God was so angry, someone had to pay. And so Jesus said, all right, I'll do it. No, God so loved the world. He was so loved that he gave. He was so loved that he gave. Let's look deeper at this word love here. Um, This agape love. This word love is preceded by the word so. That's a tiny little word, right? But it can mean a lot of different things. And it turns out in the Greek is very similar to English. Uh, That word so, it it can mean uh, the way something happens. In other words, God loved the world like so. This This is the way we describe how God loved the world. This is how he showed it. We can look at the cross to see the way that God loves us. So can also mean in the Greek to an extent, like for God so loved you, he so loved the world, like he loves us so much. So it can mean like so or so much, just like in English. And what's beautiful is the way it's written here in this this verse. It's just so beautifully written because it, it is written to encompass both of those meanings, that God loved us in this way, sacrificially, but he also loved us to this extent, limitlessly, in this way and to this extent. This is agape love, and it's used here in, in a verb form. He, it's agapeo. He agapes us. He agapes us. It's God's active love. It's self-giving. So even embedded in the word itself is, is this reminder that, that God is not over here watching the crucifix happening watching the crucifixion happen, you know, with his arms folded and he's all angry or something like this because Jesus is so nice. God himself is the one loving us in the act of crucifixion. It's his love that's on display. It's his love that's on display. The brilliant author, Gary Burge, he writes this, Jesus came to earth not in order to change God's mind. As so many believe, we get this idea that Jesus came to change his mind but to express God's mind. I'm telling you, when that sinks into your heart, when you realize that is God, that is God, when you see on the cross, you're seeing the heart of God on display, It'll, it changes your whole view of the Father, right? It changes your whole view. The, the scriptures tell us that Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. We, we get to see God on display on the cross. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, here's an interesting thing about that, this word agape, that it's, it's very rarely, if ever used in the Greek language, you know, Greek has a lot of literature out there. There's all kinds of stories and things written in Greek today. We have all the records for it. Agape is almost never, ever used. It's very, very rare word until the Old Testament. It came along, and here's what's interesting is, so there was a, a group of Jews in the Old Testament, and once the, uh, the Greeks came down and sort of conquered all of the, the area around Israel, and that became Greekified, uh, there's a better word for that, but we'll say Greekified, and a lot of the Jews spread out throughout the empire, but they took the scriptures with them, and they translated them into Greek, and we know it today as the Septuagint. The Septuagint, it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. We have the Greek New Testament, but they had a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and so when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, there was this word, a very important word that described the love of God in the Old Testament, and they needed a way to translate that into Greek. And this Hebrew word was hesed. Hesed is this beautiful love. It is the love expressed in marriage. It's, the, it's a covenantal love. Uh, it, it's love as loyalty, hesed. It was like God's heart towards Israel, right? And so when the Hebrew Bible was being translated, they wanted to come up with a word. And there wasn't one that was commonly being used. And so they, they, captured, they sort of attached themselves to this word agape, and they poured meaning into it. They said, this is going to be the word we use to describe God's love, his commitment to us, his covenantal love. And so the New Testament writers pick it up as well. They use this word agape to recognize this hesed, this agape, this self-giving love of God. And agape is really interesting because it's more than just having warm thoughts and feelings over somebody, right? If you're feeling kind of romantic towards somebody, you know, that's not necessarily agape. That's that eros, right? We've talked, we mentioned that. But agape is more than just having a thought or a feeling, It's specifically an active form of love. 
Agape is always on display. It's always on display. It's not based on emotion. It's not even based on love being returned to you. Even if the, the, the person doesn't agape you back, it's okay. It is a decision. It's a decision. And we could define agape this way. Let's see. I've already shown you that one. We could define agape this way as choosing to pr- treat someone as priceless. Agape is choosing to treat someone as priceless. So really it is. It's, it's a choice and you're treating them as priceless. Agape is commanded in the New Testament for the, for the church, for you and me which means we must be able to do it. If we're commanded to do it, we must be able to do it, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Um, so we must be able to have this, to make this choice to treat somebody in what, we, in what we say to them and how we say to them, what we do for them, what we do to them, what our attitude is about them, what we say about them, even when they're not around, behind their back. We see them as priceless. We're commanded as the church to see one another as priceless because God sees them as priceless. And that's where it stems from. Because they bear the image of God. Every single person we look at is a divine image bearer. They, they bear the image of the one who is priceless. And so we treat each other as priceless. Even with all their mistakes. Even with all their mess ups and their sins, we still say you are priceless. You are infinitely precious. And that is love. That is the love that God commands for all of us, for one another, because this is what God has done for us. John three sixteen. this is the love he showed us. And later Jesus will tell us, what I showed you, you show each other. This is the love that God has for us. And it says he so loves the world, the world. This is a great word. It's the Greek word cosmos. We've heard that word cosmos. And it can mean in the Greek the same thing as we think of when we think of the cosmos, everything, the universe. But it can also mean in the scripture, sometimes it refers to all of humanity, all of, all of the humanity, because, and, and we know that's what it's referring to here, because uh, it speaks about those who respond in faith to love. And so he intentionally is including here in this verse, is very important, he includes all of humanity in this act of divine love. And again, Again, any theology that would say, well, God only loves a subgroup of people in the special way. So he gave Christ for them. Um, whether you call him the elect or the, the chosen or the church, it's to see God as only loving a certain subgroup of people. It's out of tune with the whole thrust of scripture, all of the New Testament, the kingdom, the new covenant that he teaches in the New Testament. Dr. Robert Mounts, another really brilliant guy. He says, uh, he's, he's a biblical uh, Greek scholar. He says, any attempt to restrict the word cosmos to the elect ignores the clear use of the term throughout the New Testament. God gave his son for the deliverance of all humanity. All humanity. All humanity. We have to let that sink in. That means we can look every other human being in the eye and say the same thing. That based on the authority of Christ, God loves you so much. He loves you as much as he loves anybody. Right? You are no lower down on the totem pole of his love. In fact, for some people, I think um, the word love gets thrown around so much, it kind of starts to lose its meaning. And sometimes we have to, this is one of those rare cases, you, you can use a lesser word to get across a greater truth. And sometimes I like to remind people that God not only loves you, he not only loves you, you know what? He likes you. Are you one of these people, you're like me, like, whoa, he likes me. You know, I can kind of say, okay, I kind of get that God loves me because he's like, God, he has to, you know, he can't help it. He just, I go around loving everybody. But like, he likes me. He likes me. I'm like, yeah, I love to remind people of that. Like God, the creator of that cosmos, every, every single thing that exists, he's the one. He is crazy about you. He Facebook stalks you all the time, right? <laughs> he really, really wants a relationship with you. That's our God. He loves you. Because that word world includes everyone. Everyone. And you're an everyone. All right? And you've heard the term, you know, love's not a feeling. And it's true. Love's not a feeling. But I got to tell you, being loved is. 
And it feels amazing. Being loved by God feels amazing, right? For some of us, we just need to let that sink in and know that we are known by God. He loves you. We're loved by God. And it's not because he didn't know that thing about you, that one thing that nobody else knows. He knows that too. And he still is crazy about you. When we understand this, I think we, we get a better sense of how we are able to love other people the way he tells us to love. Because that can seem overwhelming when you just read the scriptures. Love everybody. Love everybody. Are you serious? Have you seen everybody? Right? But once you realize why and how and just the fact that he loves you, it, it, it starts to make a little more sense. Okay. Okay. That's the love. Because he loved the world so much that he gave. He gave. Love is only fully love when it is turned into action. When it gives. When we're talking about agape. Otherwise, it's meaningless. It's mere sentiment. Right? And God doesn't have sentiments about you. He agapes you. It is consuming that love. Love is love when it's turned into action, when it gives. This describes God. He's not a, just a romantic who just thinks warm thoughts about you. He's not just writing you poems. Um, this is the God who made love his self-defining trait, his self-defining action. He says in scripture, he is love. I mean, that's pretty loving. He is love. He, the infinite, became finite just so he could die for you. Because otherwise, that would have been impossible, right? That's how much he loves you. And so when we're talking about God, you're talking about the love that gives, the love that pursues, the love that covenants. It's covenantal love. It's covenantal love that says, I do. It stands in front of the preacher on the end of the aisle and says, I do. Like, not, I do, I don't know about tomorrow, but I can promise you right now, right? No, 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 God's like, I do, and I'm in forever. This is it. I do. And I am going to help you become a better version of yourself. That's hesed. That's agape. Now, I'm also aware that, and I'm guilty of this too, it's very easy in our culture, especially in our culture, to get lulled into a kind of love that feels active, like you're really loving, you're doing something, but really it's inactive. If somebody were just observing you, um, we can have a love because we feel like, well, I'm a caring and emotionally sensitive person. But love that does not give, again, I'll repeat this. Love doesn't give. Love that does not act is just sentiment, right? And, and we have more and more opportunities today within our culture to do things that feel like we're doing something that isn't actually a thing that we're doing. What do I mean by that? Like, for instance, I can retweet for a cause. I like Twitter. I, I, I look at Twitter a lot. Uh, I like Twitter, but I have to remind myself that tweeting is not actually rolling up my sleeves and going to work. It's not actually loving anybody. I haven't loved anybody by sending a tweet, right? I, there's some friends of, of mine here, James and Sharon. Sharon's right here. Uh, one of the things that has blessed me so much as I observed their life, but she didn't know I was going to say this. Sorry, Sharon. <laughs> Years ago, everybody, you know, we're, we're an evangelical church. So like everybody talks about pro-life and yay, pro-life. You know. um, then one day they show up at the church to like clean. And she's got like three or four foster kids hanging off her hips. Foster kids. Like that is putting... Agape, that's agape love. That's where you say, I'm not just having a sentiment. I'm not just going to like Facebook flame pro-life. I'm going to go get some foster kids and let them live with me. Take up part of my home so I can pour love into them. That's agape. That's love in action. That's love in action. And you could say, well, I'm raising awareness or something. And that's good. It's not like that's a bad thing to raise awareness, but raising awareness doesn't change the world. And if we're defining love as, well, I'm aware of something if I feel bad about it, or I'm aware of something if I feel really good about this, then nothing really changes, right? And, and that's where we can deceive ourselves into thinking at the end of our week, we had a really productive week, right? I tweeted a bunch, um, and we're raising awareness, so what? Someone else can do the work. That's kind of what we're doing, right? 
Love says, when I'm aware, I act. When I'm aware, I'm just going to act. That's what love says. When I'm aware, I want to move on that. And the place to start, um, I can just help us now, is with your relationships right around you. And then you move on from there. So you ask yourself, do I love uh, the, way that, the way that I am loved by God? Because he didn't just think stuff about me. He did something. Do I love that way? The way I'm loved by God. In a way that turns sentiment into action. That has said, that, that commits to a cause. And so it's very important for us that we start with the relationships around, around you. Um, the, ones, the relationships closest to you. Because if you're ignoring those relationships, if you act cold and distant and abusive or something like that towards the people closest to you so that you, know, you can do something glorious on the world stage, you're, you're missing the mark. So we start with the relationships closest to us. We start with our family. How are you loving your husband? How are you loving your wife? How are you loving your mom and your dad and your kids, your brother and your sister? In a way that is giving, in a way that is serving, not because they deserved it or they did something that now I can do it because they did this. No, just the way that God loves you. How are you doing that? Or are you not? And then you could be honest with yourself, right? I'm not asking you to stand up and tell us, right? That's for home life. We do that kind of stuff at home life, but, right? But here you can just, hey, that's a rhetorical question. What about your friends? What about your friends? Are you a person, you know, if you were honest with yourself and you kind of look back on your week and then the week before that and the week before that, are you a, are you a person that you really just kind of take mostly? You take, or are you the person who kind of wants to be the center of attention? Or are you somebody who serves? Are you somebody who gives? What about strangers, the people that pass you by every day? How are you carving out time in your life to, to help those who might need help? So you're not always having to say, I would, but I don't have time. Hmm. How about your church? How about your church? Church is kind of uh, this laboratory, isn't it? Like we come together here, we've created this community and it's like a laboratory where we can work this stuff out. We can practice on each other. I, I, can, I can love, uh, uh, you know, uh, badly and awkwardly and you'll forgive me so that I can get better and better and build up my love muscles and so I can, you know, go out into the world and really show love a good way, right? Some people come to church, you know, kind of like in the Eros way. Not that I'm good looking, uh, but, uh, but they come and it's that sense of, I want, I take. I love generations. Oh, well, why do you love generations? Well, because I, I get so much out of it. Well, that's, that's great. That's lovely. It's maybe not enough, right? Or are we, I love generations because I believe in this message so much that I'm happy to invest, I'm happy to give, I'm happy to, to be a contributor and not just a consumer. And then I see the fruit of that. Do you volunteer with your time? Do you give some of your finances? Or are these things you just, you know, maybe leave for the other people on the road to do? Do you get involved in home life or in small groups and actually get to know the people and ask questions about their life and their needs. That's what church should be at its best, a community where we're, we're living this thing out. We're trying it out on each other, right? Getting better and better at it so that we can go outside and love the world the way God tells us to love. For God so loved the world. And it says that he gave his only son. If you got you a good King James below you right there, it probably says the word begotten, right? Everybody grows up knowing that word. Or some of your translations might say your one and only son. This is an interesting word. It's one word in, in the Greek. Uh, and it's, it's this word monogenes. Some of your Bibles say different things. And monogenes literally means one of a kind. Mono means one and genes is kind of like where we get genetic kind. So monogenies, one of a kind. Uh, in different parts of scripture, it can be used for a single child. If a family has an only child, for them, that is the monogenies. It's one of a kind for them, for that family, right? Um, 
But it goes beyond just being an only child. It can also apply to anything that is in a category all by itself. All by itself. Monogenes. Jesus is the only monogenes son of God. Now, we, we are all children of God, right? You're a son. We're sons and daughters of God. But not in the same way. There's just something where right? we know like, well, I know I'm a son and daughter of God, but it's not like Jesus. There's something different. And sure enough, the scriptures tell us he is the only monogenes, the only one of his kind. And then he says, so that everyone who believes, everyone who believes. Here, I just love this because he just busts up any kind of, if there was any doubt as to, you know, exclusivity or it's just for some people or not other people, he busts it all up. There's no special treatment here. Uh, he, he busts it wide open. This idea of the cosmos, of, of God loving the cosmos. You know what's interesting? I didn't know this. I, I just learned this recently studying this out. But um, this is very unique to Jesus in, in the Judaism of his day. Within Jewish literature, if you go back and read Old Testament or even some of their other writings, the other Jewish writings of that, that age, uh, we could assume that God loves the world. You could infer it. But that statement is reserved for Israel, that God loves Israel. That's, that's where it's reserved for. God wants to work with Israel to be a blessing to other nations. He wants Israel to be the light of the world. But God's love, his heart, his said, is set on Israel. And here Jesus just busts this wide open. He lands on the planet and turns everything on its head. We find out that it was always his intention by loving Israel and by partnering with Israel that he wanted to express that love to the world, that that was his goal. And now through Christ, God says that he loves the world, the cosmos, everyone. It's a radically inclusive statement. It's not exclusive like some people accuse Christianity of being. This is a radically inclusive statement. God loved the world so much and in this way that he gave his only son, Jesus, the one who is one of a kind, the one of a kind like no other, that everyone who believes. We've talked about this idea of believing uh, last week. We talked about it. And home life, and we keep coming back to it uh, because it's fascinating. This idea of believing, believing. Why doesn't God just force his salvation on everybody? Why not just, you know, save everybody right now? Why does, why, why make it, why not make it automatically take place for people? And this is such an eye-opener for me that I keep coming back to it. That whenever faith comes up in the scriptures, whenever you see something about faith, about believing, about trusting, it, it is a testimony to the fact that we are made in the image of God. You are made in the image of God. That's not because you had two eyes and a nose. That's not what makes you in the image of God. It is because you are a choice maker. That is unique to you. And, and you were made in his image. And once God has made us in that image, he honors his image in us. And he invites us to respond. He doesn't remove choice from us. No, no. To be made in the image of God, even though we come to him broken, we come to him sinful, we've missed the mark. Nevertheless, to be made in his image is to be a choice maker. And so faith Faith is the calling for us to respond to what God is offering. And we are all, without exception, we are all offered this gift and offered and invited to respond. Without exception, we're all invited to respond. And he honors that choice-making image, that image of God in us. To believe, not in a religion, not in a set of beliefs, or doctrines, but to believe in a person, to believe, to put our trust in Jesus, to put our trust in Jesus. Hmm. And what happens for those who do? It says here, they shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, last week we talked about we talked some about this eternal life, everlasting life, that just life that is abundant. So I won't go back into that. I do want to comment just for a second on the flip side of living eternally, which Jesus calls perishing. 
This word perishing is an interesting word. It's the word used most commonly throughout Scripture, especially the New Testament, when talking about the, the fate of those who die without a knowledge of God. It's used over 100 times, this word. And uh, it's kind of interesting. There's a lot of debate, you know, among different denominations, depending on what church you go to or what tradition you grew up with about what exactly Jesus means by this word perishing, right? The debate over hell. Anybody ever wade into that online? You know, you Google that, that, that'll take you down a rabbit hole. Um, but it, this is a debate that has continued for 2,000 years. It's really, really interesting. And it's kind of settled in really three main camps today. Um, and we're not going to wade deeply into that today. Maybe someday we'll spend a Sunday really looking at these three big theories. Of, we'll have Hell Sunday. Won't that be fun? Um, sometime. But just to, uh, enough to say today, um, I want to acknowledge that there are passages. There are passages that suggest that the fires of hell are eternal and that the souls who were sent there are uh, supernaturally sustained uh, by God to suffer torment forever and ever and ever. Uh, this is probably the most popular theory among evangelicals today, especially over the last 200 years. Others point to scriptures that seem to suggest that the fires of hell have a more purifying effect. Um, Kind of, you might have heard of the refining fire. This is a refining fire. And so there's, they would say that maybe there's still hope for those who find themselves there. This is a common view among the Eastern Orthodox Church. Uh, and still others, this was interesting, is one of the, maybe the fastest growing segments today would insist that this word perishing that Jesus uses means, well, perishing. Means done right? Done dead. And that e eternal life that he offers isn't just eternal life in heaven. It's actually eternal life. It's eternal existence it stands in contrast to eternal death. So there's three camps. Um, and we can acknowledge that all filled with, all of them are filled with good, devout, Bible-believing Christians. Um, I have all three of these camps represented among my friends and my family. So you, I have proof you can get along with people, whatever, whichever in one of these camps they fall into. Um, and you can make a biblical case for all of them. It is interesting stuff, though. The word here, I'll just give you, that, that's used in John 3.16 and used, like I said, over 100 times in the New Testament. In Greek, it's this word apolomai. Apollomai literally means utterly destroyed or absolute destruction. Um, there's a permanence to the word, especially whenever it's used for other objects. Sometimes it'll be used for uh, a city that gets destroyed, and it just means whew, it's gone. Um, or crops that are burnt up, it's just they're apollomied, um, they cease to exist. <clears throat> And uh, this would kind of resemble the typical Hebrew writings of the day. If you read the Old Testament, whenever they do talk, they don't really mention much about afterlife in the Old Testament. Uh, but when they do, they would talk about the ungodly just kind of getting, whoosh, right, like blown away like the chaff, it might, the Old Testament might say, or burnt up like grass. Um, the Psalms talk about the ungodly melting away, just melting away. Um, so... You'll have an opportunity again to uh, talk about this a, a bit more this week in, in home life. Uh, so have fun with that. Um, but what we can say about this is this. This is yet another opportunity to rally around a very important truth that we come back to here, which is that Christians are not kept in unity by getting the right doctrine about hell. That's not how we're kept in unity. Now, I'm, there's a right answer. I'm sure there's a right answer there, right? And you, you can believe in that right answer. But we're not kept in unity about getting the right doctrine about hell. We are unified by Christ, Jesus Christ, right? So good, good, good Christians, and I do with, with friends. I have good, vigorous theological discussions and debate, but we do it as family. We're not doing it trying to root out the heretic. We do it as family to say Jesus unites us. Jesus unites. Now, let's see what we can learn from each other, right? Um, it is interesting. The early church did not seem to obsess as much over hell as we do. And I think it's a good lesson for us not to let whatever is, you know, the way we, we see it and the way we grew up with it or whatever scriptures we want to point to, don't let that get in the way of evangelizing somebody, you know, who is, you're trying to present Jesus to. If they have a problem with what God does with people in hell, say, hey, uh, there's good Christians who would agree with you. Let's forget about that for a second. Let's talk about Jesus, right? Uh, I'm a full believer, and let's talk about Jesus. Um, in fact, the book of Acts, 
the book that records all of the evangelistic witnessing of the church, the preaching of the New Testament church. The book of Acts is a beautiful book written by Luke. Uh, the, the witnessing to both Jews and Gentiles and how the church proclaimed the gospel. We get to witness sermons that they preached. Guess what's never once mentioned in the entire book of Acts? Hell. Not one time. Not one time. Uh, the apostle Paul never once mentions hell when preaching to unbelievers. Isn't that interesting? Not once. He speaks about a day of judgment, but he doesn't get into any more specifics than that. The writings of the early church for those first two or three hundred years, the writings of the early church, um, when they would come together and the church fathers and the, the, when they would have the council, like the, the, the council of Nicaea to come together and they came up with the Nicene Creed, which churches today still talk about the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. These were the creeds that came together and they said, okay, we've got to hammer out what is it that is absolutely essential for us to be unified and be the church. You know, what do we, what do we have to agree on? Hell's never mentioned. Isn't that interesting? We're a lot more obsessed with hell than a lot of these, these original, the original church was. It seems to me, when I read this, I ask, you know, Lord, why is that? Why isn't that more of a big deal? And it seems to me that the early church wanted to make sure that they were calling people to follow someone and not run away from something. You never see it about running away from something. It's about following someone. We want to help people run toward a person, toward a person, not away from a place. And so our emphasis is on Jesus. Jesus is what unifies us. Jesus is the one on the king, on the, on, on the, on the throne. He is the king on the throne. Amen. He, is the, he sits at the center of this good news gospel, the good news gospel that he told us to preach. And he said, if we would believe on him, we would not perish, but have eternal life. Whatever perishing means, I don't want it. I want eternal life, right? That's the good news. That's the good news. Well, praise God. So much truth is packed into this, this one little verse. Um, and next week, we're going to wrap up this, uh, the last few verses of this conversation. And again, don't forget on September 5th, we're going to have Q&A Sunday. We'll come back to answer all the questions that hopefully are, are floating around in your mind. Write those things down as we just continue to study this beautiful chapter. In just a minute, we're going to receive communion together. I hope, hopefully you got uh, some of the communion elements as you were walking in today. If you didn't, there's some in the back over there. I think there's some right over there. Just feel free, run, run, go get those. Um, and before we do that, I just want to invite us all to, to take a next step toward experiencing this new life now to the fullest. And I'm talking to all of us. Uh, if, if you're a believer, don't, don't check out here. I want to talk to all of us about taking a next step because we can all take a next step. We can all take another step. If you are somebody here who's not yet a follower of Jesus Christ, or maybe you're kind of in those initial stages of putting your faith in Jesus, can I just invite you this morning to just take a breath? Take a breath. That's a weird thing to ask someone to do, Scott. What do I mean by that? I think faith is a lot like breathing. You know, when you're born, breathing isn't a one-time thing. Thank goodness, right? When you come out, everybody's waiting on that first breath or cry or something, right? That doctor might give it that little bottom, a little pat, right? Because we want that breath. And the doctor doesn't come out and go, he took a breath. It was the last one, but he took a breath. No, we want to know he's still breathing. He's still breathing. He took a breath and he kept going. He's still breathing. He's doing great. Faith is a lot like that. Faith is a life of breathing in and breathing out. Breathing in. We even have a word for it. It's called literally inspiration. The spirit of God in. And breathing out in the form of prayer, inspiration and prayer. That is the walk of faith. That is the life of a Christ follower, breathing in, breathing out. It's not a one-time breath you took. It's over and over. And you, that means something else. You don't have to have it all figured out right now. We don't give that baby a quiz when he's born, right? 
No, we just want that baby to start breathing. And that's all God wants from you. He just wants you to breathe. Just start breathing in his presence, breathing in his spirit. That's how he captured me. I had a lot of stuff I didn't figure out. Still trying to figure some of it out. And it's all right. Because he said, this will be a lifelong little journey you and I are taking. This is a lifelong relationship. And I'm in it to the end. He said, he's in it to the end. He's never, ever, ever going to give up on you. The life of faith is a life of faithing. You're continually trusting him with your next right step. And then the next step after that. And then the next step after that. It's a relationship. It's a partnership with Jesus. And it's beautiful. And then there's some of us here. Probably most of us here had our, have already taken that, that first breath. We've, we've already taken some steps of faith. We're breathing. We're going along. We're chucking along. We are, maybe you hear today's message. And maybe for you, you're just hearing the voice of God say, here's some ways you can love better. I love you. Here's some ways you can love better. Our God can tell us that. The Holy Spirit it says that he convicts us. It's not to throw us in the slammer. He convicts us lovingly to mature us, to grow us, to form us more into the image of his son, Jesus. That's what his goal is. He wants, he wants all of us to look more like that monogenes son of his, Jesus. And so he's talking to us. And maybe you've heard the voice of God said, here are ways you can love better your friends or your family, your coworkers, strangers on the street your own church community. And maybe right now as you're just sitting there, the Spirit's just lighting up ways, that, you know, ways where maybe you have been a little bit more of a giver or more of a taker than a giver. Maybe in a lot of areas you're a wonderful giver, but maybe in some areas you've held back. And you can say, God, just help me learn to love better, to grow into that kind of love that you love me with. Help me to grow better. This is what Jesus says in John's gospel in chapter 13. He says, I am giving you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I've loved you. Ooh, it would have been easy if he hadn't said that part. Oh, Jesus, really? Just as you've loved me, you also should love one another. Oh, and remember, who do we start with? those closest to us. We start with the people closest to us. Don't neglect them so you can go do the great thing. Start with the people closest to you. Love them better. Love them better. It's beautiful. Our calling is to receive this love of God, this agape love, and live it out to other people. What is God saying to you during this past hour? I believe he's speaking to every single one of us about specific things. I feel him speaking to me. I feel him, I feel him tugging on things. Just ask him to make it more and more vivid in your mind. Lord, bring that so there's no confusion. I don't want to wonder what you're saying. I want to know what you're saying. And, and you let him know that I'm ready to partner. I'm ready to partner with you, Lord, in that direction. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Hallelujah. Father, oh, we love you so much. Thank you for speaking to us today, Lord. Thank you for speaking to us by your spirit and speaking to us most clearly, Lord, through your son. Lord, I ask that we would see clearly who you are calling us to become and all the ways that you're calling us to change, Lord. Lord, that we would see clearly your love for us. Let that just be our starting point, Father, for all of this. And as, Lord, as we partake of this bread and this cup together, may we surrender, Lord, our lives to you. May we remember the love that you showed us on the cross. Lord, we want to emulate that love. That love that you put on display. You showed us who you really are and how much you really love us, Lord God. Thank you for coming, Lord Jesus, to defeat death, hell, and the grave so that we can live not in fear but in peace. Thank you for the healing that you purchased for our bodies for healing that you purchased for our souls. And may we be comforted and made secure in who we are in you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen. The body of Christ broken for you.
The blood of Christ shed for you. us from this moment on into people who would seek uh, not so much to be consoled as to console others, Lord God, who would people who would give rather than receive, for people who are ready to forgive rather than be proven right. Lord, may we enter into relationships this week, not as needy people, but as instruments of blessing your blessing that you want to flow through us, Lord. I I look forward to what your spirit is doing in us, what you're doing through us, and seeing the fruit of all of that this week in all these wonderful people's lives, Lord. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, if there's anything we can pray with you about, make sure uh, that you let us know. You can, you can let us know your prayer request online. Uh, you can send it to uh, prayer, uh, is it prayer at gchurch.net. Uh, you can also go to the website and send it to us. You can uh, drop, drop it in our, again, the, the, the boxes right there. And uh, Doug and Deb, do we, will we, are y'all able to pray with folks today? Okay, great. Doug and Debbie are going to be up here uh, at the end of service. They would love to pray with you in person. If there's something you need just that in-person prayer for, that touch of faith, they'll be right here to pray with you about that. If you want to make that decision today to just say yes to Jesus, uh, this is a great day to do it. Just come down and let them lead you in that prayer. Amen. Um, We have water baptism happening immediately following church also, so that's exciting. You can stick around and celebrate with us, those who are going to be entering the waters of baptism. Um, And uh, if you are one of the ones who are being baptized, just join us over here and we'll kind of give you that next right step to take. Uh, That's going to be a lot of fun. Friends, would you stand to your feet? Let me bless you today. May the love of the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus and the fellowship of his Holy Spirit be all over you this week. Amen. Grace and peace. Bye-bye.